Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening around the world. Welcome back. As always, my name is Alexander, and you're listening to a brand new season of Ivy Exec Insights, a weekly podcast brought to you by Ivy Exec, an elite network of global thought leaders. You can visit us at ivyexec.com and also follow us on your favorite podcast platform. The topic of the first episode in the second season is From Burnout to Balance. Tools and Strategies for Cultivating a Resilient Team, with our special guests Sonia V. Baden, PhD licensed clinical psychologist and Vice President of Programs at Stop Soldier Suicide, and Anastasia Gavrilovic, Senior Career Advisor at Ivy Exec. In this episode, we'll discuss the key challenges and best practices for designing and implementing a successful program that can improve your workforce's overall health and well-being. Enjoy the show! Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for our session from Burnout to Balance, uh, Tools and Strategies for Cultivating a Resilient Team with our special guest, Sonia Batten. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and vice president of programs at Stop Soldier Suicide. My name is Anastasia, and I am the Senior Career Advisor here at Ivy Exec. Now it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce uh, you to Sonia Baden. She is a Stop Soldier Suicide uh, Vice President of Programs and Senior Mental Health Professional. Uh, she's overseeing all clinical program development. And before that, she served as the Senior Psychological Health Advisor for Bruce Allen Hamilton for eight years. As a licensed clinical psychologist and certified executive coach, she also serves as an experienced leader in guiding Stop uh, Stop Soldier Suicide Wellness Programs based on the latest scientific evidence. She has over 25 years of experience in mental health and wellness, and that is what brings her today to our conversation where we will talk more about employee well-being and wellness. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me here today. You're very welcome. So let's just uh, introduce you first. Can you talk a bit more about your experience and expertise? Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist by training, and I have over 25 years of experience in mental health and wellness. I've worked in lots of different kinds of settings over the years. I've worked in academia, in the U.S. federal government. Um, I've worked in the nonprofit world and as the senior psychological health advisor for a Fortune 500 company. I've also worked on strategies for employee wellness for, you know, smaller training programs and medium-sized clinical teams that I've personally run, as well as for companies over 20,000 people. Um, As you said, I'm also an executive coach, and so I get to hear one-on-one about the factors that make people either love or hate their jobs. So that, that all factors into the things I'll be talking about today. Well, that is great. So let's move on to what is employee wellness program? How do companies, how did they care of employee well-being and wellness? 
Yeah, so so we'll just start with uh, just even the terms we're using. So employee wellness and well-being refer to the overall health, happiness, and satisfaction of employees in the workplace. And that encompasses various aspects of an employee's life. It could be physical health, mental health, emotional well-being, and social relationships. And, and so when we think about employee well-being and wellness, we're talking about creating a work environment that supports the physical, mental, and emotional health of employees. And it's all about creating a culture that prioritizes that well-being of employees and recognizes that it's not just a thing that's nice to have, but that actually employee health and happiness are critical to the success of the organization. And um, we're going to talk today about all different aspects of, of those sorts of efforts. Um, and, and one way that companies are thinking about this now are actual formal employee wellness programs. And those can include a range of activities and resources. I'll give lots of examples today. Um, but really, the goal of those programs is to create that culture of wellness and support that empowers employees to prioritize their health and well-being. And, um, you know, really, what companies are realizing now is that if we promote an environment that fosters a positive work-life balance and supports employees' overall health and well-being, it can lead to things like increased productivity, higher job satisfaction, decreased absenteeism and turnover rates, the things that um, actually make a difference to the functioning of the organization and the bottom line. Right, so they have to invest in order to get their return. <laughs> so would you say that companies started paying attention to that very recently? When would you say that started happening? Yeah, it's really been a, a long evolution. Um, and uh, that, you know, they've been paying attention to employee wellness and well-being for several decades, but the focus has really changed over time. So at least in the United States, in the early 20th century, the focus was on improving basic working conditions to ensure the safety of employees, prevent injury. Then in the 1950s and 60s, the focus shifted toward providing health insurance. That was a new thing and other benefits to employees. And then by the 1970s, companies started to recognize the importance of promoting employee wellness as a way of reducing those healthcare costs and increasing productivity. And some of the earliest wellness programs during that time included smoking cessation programs, weight loss programs, exercise classes, things like that. Then in the 1980s and 90s, employee wellness programs continued to evolve. Companies started offering a wider range of services like stress management, mental health support, and financial education. And today, many companies have established really comprehensive wellness programs that offer a wide range of resources and initiatives to support employee well-being. So this can include access to mental health resources, health coaching, nutrition programs, fitness classes and more. And, and companies now are also increasingly recognizing the importance of creating a supportive work culture that wraps around all of that and fosters work-life balance and actively encourages employees to prioritize their well-being. 
Well, that is something I feel like also was um, emphasized with remote work. I think people started talking more and more about work-life balance because it was, for some it was difficult to separate, for others it was the best thing that ever happened to them to be able to work from home. <laughs> so I think that also bring us uh, brings us today where it's it's more and more important. So what would you say are the different potential components of one employee wellness program? Sure, so you can think of it in different categories. So first of all, physical wellness. So that might include things like incorporating exercise, yoga, stretching, um, promoting healthy eating and drinking water. Um, and then even things like providing ergonomic furniture like this fancy chair I'm sitting in and equipment to support good posture and reduce workplace injuries. So there's physical health. Then there's mental health, and that could be things like um, Im implementing stress management techniques like meditation, mindfulness, breathing exercises, um, like you were saying, encouraging the work-life balance, taking breaks, and offering what are called employee assistance programs where individuals are able to usually access free or low-cost mental health care um, that is completely private and separate from um, the organization, but is provided by the organization. Um, there's also social wellness. So that's things like having team building activities, group challenges to promote those positive relationships, um, really working on encouraging communication and open feedback among team members. For example, some organizations, um, you know, share a, a book or a philosophy with everyone like radical candor or something like that, so that there's really that structure around communication. Um, using internal social media like Slack or Teams for better collaboration. Um, then uh, organizations can also think about career wellness, so working on career development and training programs, um, providing clear opportunities for career growth and advancement, um, offering job rotation, shadowing, so that people know that, that you know, there is a future for them in the organization. And then uh, a final area that I've really seen attention to over the past probably five years or so is financial wellness, because financial stressors are one of the most common things that, um, you know, can be distracting and upsetting to people. And so um, some companies are conducting financial wellness sessions, giving them guidance on budgeting and investing, or even offering financial planning and investment. Um, resources to employees. So uh, really, um, organizations can implement any or all of those areas. And then really the best programs are then um, doing evaluation and continuous improvement. So they're doing regular surveys to measure employee engagement and feedback on the wellness program. Um, they're monitoring and analyzing some health and safety data to identify areas for improvement. And then incorporating new features and techniques based on either the employee feedback or the industry trends. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned something very interesting, you know, open feedback. I think for most employees, depending on the company, it sort of became 
uh, well, scary to share openly what they really think, you know, and then they have uh, surveys that they answer like everything's great, you know, five stars, 10 stars, I would recommend it to everyone. <laughs> so how do you think we can surpass that and actually achieve open communication between employees and their managers or, you know, their direct uh, reporters? Reporting level. Yeah, I, I think probably a, a couple of things. Um, first of all, with, with surveys, whenever possible, an easy thing to do is to make the surveys anonymous. Um, you know, sometimes people may not may not trust even that, even when they're told that it's anonymous. So you keep that in mind, but making clear that that it's anonymous, you know, having an, an external link, not having it associated with the person's, um, you know, email address, things like that. But really, I think it's more about the building that culture of trust and, um, and demonstrating that it is a safe place and that it is okay to give um, honest feedback. And I, I think managers and supervisors and senior leaders can model that themselves. They can model both um, saying candid things for themselves as well as really paying attention and, and noticing when when they get feedback from, from a team member that um, they really need to be careful about how they respond in that moment because um, what may seem like a, a flippant response on their part to them can feel like they're shutting somebody down or punishing them. Right. Well, it's all about the culture of trust, I would say. Then you would even share it with your name and email <laughs> address. It wouldn't matter that much. Yeah. Um, so how important is it for companies to care about mental health of their employees in 2023? Yeah, it's it's really really important now. Of course, I'm a psychologist, so that's that's the answer you would expect for me, but but really even if we look at objective data, mental health issues can have a really significant impact on an employee's well-being, on their productivity, on their job satisfaction. You know, if we look at data from the World Health Organization, if you think about just depression and anxiety, those two problems cost the global economy an estimated 1 trillion in lost productivity every year. So if companies can prioritize employees' mental health, if they can create that supportive and positive work environment, that can promote engagement retention, productivity. And by addressing mental health issues, they can help reduce absenteeism, turnover, and healthcare costs. But beyond the economic benefits, caring about your employees' mental health is, is just the right thing to do. And, and really in this day and age, um, it is, it's now expected that supporting employees' mental health and well-being is, is a fundamental part of being a responsible and ethical employer. And it also helps to create that workplace culture that values and supports its employees, which can then lead to loyalty, commitment, and engagement by the, by the uh, employees. And, and as you were saying, really, um, I think one of the side effects that's a benefit of the COVID pandemic that we've all just gone through, mental health 
is an issue that affects everyone. It's it's not something that happens to people over there. It's something that affects all of us. And and I really believe that the pandemic accelerated the discussion of those things in the workplace, which I think is a really positive development. Um, and and I think companies started to realize that um, with the additional stress that we were all under, especially in that first year, um, that they really needed to provide active support for employees who might be struggling. So, you know, just to summarize, I think it's not only good for business, it's a moral imperative, um, and we can create a happier, healthier, and more productive workforce. Um, but that said, this this question always reminds me of a meme I saw a few years ago on social media. It's one of my favorite ones because at least I resonated to it. And and the meme is a dialogue between a company and an employee. And so at first the company says, "We'd like to promote mental health in the workplace." And so the employees respond, "Well, how about hiring more people so we feel less pressured and increase our pay so we can keep up with the spiraling cost of living so we're not so stressed out?" And the company responds, "No, not like that. Try yoga." You know, oh, so I just pizza wanted- party. Yeah, or a pizza party, exactly. So I want to be clear, there are things we can do to help individuals improve their mental health at the single person level, and that's important. But really, in the end, I believe the characteristics of the actual work environment and the work that needs to get done are are really essential components, too. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. I feel like if the communication was a bit more open, people wouldn't quit their jobs. They would be able to communicate whatever it is, whether they are having too much to do, they are you know, overwhelmed, they're not able to do it. If someone would listen to them, they wouldn't quit in a month right, or a couple of months. They would stay there, and that's always beneficial for the company. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So what about if we look at employee wellness programs for an, from an industrial organizational psychology perspective? What does literature say about evidence-based ways to promote wellness among employees? Yeah, so this is something that um, IO psychology research has been looking at for many years. And so here are a few of the things that we know from that literature. Um, First of all, as we were just talking about creating a supportive organizational culture that values employee well-being, that's critical to promoting employee wellness. And that can be uh, achieved by offering flexible work arrangements, providing opportunities for physical activity, for breaks, and and actively promoting that work-life balance. Um, As we've been talking about and we'll keep talking about for this hour, implementing wellness programs that are evidence-based, we'll we'll go into more detail about that. Uh, Providing those resources and support for mental health if somebody's having a challenge beyond just a a day-to-day stressor. Um, Encouraging social support. So really social support from colleagues and supervisors can be a really powerful tool in employee wellness. I mean, just think about it. The people that we work with 
we're with them for more of the day than we're usually with anybody else in our lives, right? At least during the week. And so making sure that that the um, the relationships we have with those people are supportive and and genuine is a really important part. And and you know when employers can promote team building, give actual opportunities for social interaction, not just work interaction, um, and providing support for employee recognition and appreciation, that all goes into that. Um, and some organizations also offer health screenings and assessments to help employees identify potential health risks um, ahead of time and take proactive steps to address them. And by doing those screenings, it can also help the employer provide um, physical wellness programs that are specific to their workforce. So, so overall, if we think of what we know from IO psychology research, uh, that really we need a holistic approach to promoting employee wellness, and that includes creative, creating a supportive organizational culture, implementing evidence-based wellness programs, providing resources and support for mental health, encouraging social support, and offering health screenings. Um, all of that together can promote employee well-being and, and improve productivity and job satisfaction. Well, I'm glad that we just talked about this because our, our next topic is burnout. It's something that you know, we hear more and more about people who are burned out, so they quit and then they aren't able to work for the next, next six months or even a year. So what do we know about how to address and maybe prevent employee burnout? Yeah, employee burnout, it's its not just a buzzword. It's a serious issue that, as you were saying, can lead to decreased productivity, job dissatisfaction, turnover, all of those things. So, um, so here are some scientifically valid ways to, um, you know, together prevent employee burnout. Encouraging breaks and time off um, that can allow employees to rest and recharge, um, offering flexible work schedules and providing opportunities for rest and relaxation, encouraging people to really use their vacation time. I'll tell you a, um, a, a novel thing that actually my, my current place of employment does, which is that every month uh, out of the year, every single month, there is at least one weekend that's a long weekend, that's a three-day weekend. So, um, so we know that it's not just the big holidays, but every time um, during a month, there will be one day where you actually get to take a break and, and get some rest or take care of things. And it's sort of nice because a lot of times those days fall on days where the rest of the country doesn't have the day off. And so you can actually have a, a rest day without having to take care of your kids or, you know, being home with your, your spouse. You can actually just have a day for yourself. So that's, that's a really great example. Um, also promoting work-life balance, um, you know, offering those flexible work arrangements like telecommuting, flexible schedules, and, and really actively 
um, encouraging employees to prioritize their personal lives outside of work. I know one of the ways that I do that um, with my team is that on our Slack channel, we have a, a wellness uh, on our Slack program, we have an, a wellness channel. And so I make a point to post silly things from my life um, that show that I have a life outside of work and that, um, you know, it doesn't have to be all serious all the time, that I have interests outside of work. I want to know what their interests are outside of work. And so not only are we sort of telling people that work-life balance is important, but we're also modeling it and making it okay to, to talk about those things. Um, I've talked already about providing support for mental health and fostering that positive work environment. Those are both important for burnout. And then also offering training and development opportunities. Um, that can give people new skills, um, give them new challenges, new things to think about and focus on, um, which can help with staying engaged and motivated and at the same time, help people feel like you care about them advancing in their careers. So it, preventing burnout really requires a multifaceted approach at both the individual and organizational level. Um, and um, But there really are things we can do, um, at least to some extent, to prevent burnout. So is it possible to know who is actually responsible for employee burnout? Do you think it's the company or is it the person themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a debate and, and you can hear it talked about both ways. Um, you know, some people think it's really the responsibility of the employer to support that well-being and other people think that the employees themselves have the responsibility to manage their own stress and prioritize self-care. And in reality, burnout can have a lot of different causes. It can be the individual, it can be organizational, and it can be environmental factors too. Um, so you can't really assign responsibility for burnout to a single entity. Um, but when we think about the organizational factors, it's things like workload, job demands, support from supervisors and colleagues. Um, like if you have really unrealistic realistic um, deadlines or have little control over the work you do, um, that can contribute to burnout. Um, there are environmental factors like changes in the economy, industry trends, societal pressures, those things can all make work more stressful. Um, and, um, you know, because things like healthcare problems or finances, um, that can, if you're struggling with those things in your life, then it can be harder to deal with the stress at work on top of that. Um, and then individual factors, things like um, perfectionism or people who have a tendency to overwork themselves and not make those choices around balancing the amount of time they're spending at work when they have that choice. Um, those people can be more susceptible to burnout. So we really have to think about all of those things holistically. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of the other things that's interesting to think about is, is the role of technology in burnout prevention. You know, that's sort of controversial too, because while on the one hand, technology can provide flexibility, it can facilitate communication and collaboration, but as especially as it was highlighted during the pandemic, it can also contribute to like an always on work culture, um, and it can make it difficult for employees to disconnect and recharge. And and so, you know, 
I think employers really need to be more mindful of the potential negative impact of those technological advances um, and create policies and practices that support work-life balance. Um, and for example, you know, one of the things that that I've had to try to be more mindful of is um, for me, sometimes I'll go on to my Slack, you know, in the evening. And if I can just respond quickly to something to get it off my plate, I'll do that. But then what can happen is then my employees think they're supposed to be responding at night. And that's actually not what I intended. What I intended was just, I don't have to think about it anymore because I've responded. But you have to realize that there can be those unintended consequences on how things are perceived. And so I have to try to remind myself, you know, to use features like scheduling the, the response. So I can go ahead and put in the response. So I've done my part, but then I schedule it to show it to the person at the beginning of the next workday. And so it, it takes an extra step for me, um, but really, I I do care and want to be mindful and want to be modeling, you know, for for my team members, um, you know, that I don't expect them to be responding at at 9 p.m. unless it truly is an emergency. So um, so I think we have to pay really close attention to how technology um, that we think is helping can have some some of those unintended consequences. I definitely do the same thing. I just don't want to think about it. <laughs> so even when I'm on vacation, I will just like, let's just take a look at my e inbox, my email inbox, just to see if there's anything urgent. Uh, but I, uh, what I wanted to discuss, because I do work with, with clients that are executive level professionals, would you say that it gets more difficult to have a work-life balance as you go higher up in the leadership, um, you know, uh, scale, because sometimes people will tell me that the reason that they're not looking for a C-suite level role anymore is because they don't want to work 80 hours a week. They don't want to, you know, work 70 hours a week, which is already, to me, <laughs> like double what I work, right, as an individual contributor. So do you think it gets more difficult or do do you think that people can have more power to decide, you know, whether they will do it or not? Yeah, I, I think it's both. I mean, obviously, I don't want to minimize that if you're if you're the CEO or the COO, I mean, you, you are going to have to be working to some extent outside of normal hours because, you know, you have that responsibility. And at the same time, I don't necessarily think it's harder to have work-life balance, but I think you have to be way more intentional about it. Um, you know, uh, so I, I think of an example from somebody who was in the C-suite at the last place that I worked. And what she talked about is that for her, the most important thing was to be able to spend time with her kids from 5.30 to 8.30 every night. And so she was very intentional about it. And she told everybody that she would not accept a meeting between 5.30 and 8.30. Um, but what she always told people is that I will get on my email at 
8.30 just to see if there's anything time sensitive that I need to respond to. But that these three hours are, are mine and they're special and they're important to me. And so she had to be really intentional about it. And, um, and I would also um, remind people that especially when you are starting a new job or changing a role, those are really good times to set those boundaries. It becomes much harder if you don't set a boundary when you start a job and you're responsive and you're the person who's available all the time, no matter what, and, and you're the go-to person, um, then it becomes much harder to pull that back because then it seems like, what's, what's going on with, with that person? You know, she's, she's not wrong? as uh, helpful as she was before, you know, whereas if you can start off a role and be clear about your boundaries and what you need and still be a high performer, um, then that's a really good way and a good time to, to start setting those limits. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, let's move on a bit here. Do you think there are any controversies or debates when it comes to employee wellness programs? I, I think there are some. Um, one that I that I hear probably the most often is around potential invasion of privacy. So when you see wellness programs that have like a, um, you know, move your body challenge, you know, and um, I remember the first time I saw that at some place I was working and my team, you know, it was like, and you don't even have to do anything. You can just sync up your Fitbit or your fitness tracker to our app and we'll be able to, you know, see automatically how many steps you're doing. How easy is that? Well, they didn't think about the fact that some people were like, I don't want you to be having access to my fitness tracker. You know, like they, they wonder like, will they be able to see where I'm walking or what time I'm walking? Um, you know, and right. so uh, companies have to think about the fact that some of those things that to them seem harmless can feel like an invasion of privacy to the employee. Um, there's also a concern that sometimes wellness programs may discriminate against employees unintentionally for people who aren't able to meet the wellness program requirements, like those who have a disability or a chronic illness and can't do 10,000 steps a day. Um, may also not take into account socioeconomic factors that affect health, um, like the ability to have healthy food or a safe neighborhood to go out and exercise in. Um, they can also feel coerced into, um, you know, participating in wellness programs, um, especially when there are incentives like lower insurance premiums or $800 for participating. Um, then people can feel like they're compelled to participate even if they don't want to. And, um, and then I've even heard some people say like, oh, this is making me feel even more burned out because it's just another thing that I have to do for the next six weeks. I have to track my healthy eating every day for the next six weeks. And so, you know, what if it actually adds to burnout? So the, those are some, some unintended things that I think sometimes organizations haven't thought through. Well, that's a good example of something that probably is no longer popular, but are there any other employee wellness initiatives that are now out of style or, you know, just no longer useful? 
Yeah, yeah, things like smoking cessation programs, um, that that was a popular one initially, but they haven't been shown to be very effective and really don't change smoking rates in the long term. Um, Also, weight loss competitions, uh, you know, um, sometimes people don't like to compete, and that's a very personal thing and, and, you know, can contribute to culture of of paying attention to, you know, what people look like, et cetera. those biometric screenings of things like blood pressure and cholesterol, um, you know, could be useful to give people that information, but companies are doing that less, again, because people have expressed concerns about privacy. Um, and um, and then things like on-site gyms, that was, that was already declining even uh, before the pandemic, but you see that obviously even less now um, that, uh, you know, people felt at some points like, Maybe they were even being pressured to exercise during the workday instead of being able to make their own choices. So, um, you know, employers really need to be careful about um, the effectiveness and and the actual popularity of wellness programs before implementing them. Right. There is something that I wanted to check with you because I feel like some companies think it's a benefit. Sometimes they have like, you know, a thirsty Thursday or a day in the week where people drink alcohol right together. And that is definitely not something that is considered healthy, right, for someone's body. So do you think that is one of the, you know, bad ideas of how to actually help promote employee well-being? Yeah, I think that that's also one of those things that's on the on the decline. Um, I mean, obviously, with the pandemic, people were at work less, so that sort of changed that habit. Um, but but yeah, the happy hours have actually been criticized for a number of reasons. One, like you said, it's not a particularly healthy thing to promote. Um, two, it's not sensitive to people who may be choosing not to drink for a variety of reasons, and then they get awkward attention either for not going or for not drinking while they're there. Um, you know, it can be uh, in some ways it can uh, be considered discriminatory because people who have small children or other responsibilities after work and can't stay for a happy hour can feel like they're disadvantaged because maybe they can't, um, you know, schmooze with their boss after work at the happy hour. Um, And also, obviously, like, you know, that can lead to a situation where people make choices that aren't really great that, that, you know, on the next day, they, they don't feel so good about and that can actually affect their career. So I do think that's something that, um, I mean, it certainly still happens, but in terms of it being sponsored by the employer, I think that's happening a lot less. Well, that's that's good news. <laughs> I was uh, I was confused by it when I first saw it because I was like, why would I just drink on a random work day? I've n- I've never done that before. So now if if it's for free, I I will do it. Like I'm I'm not going to. <laughs> So it was um, really weird for me. I feel like something that uh, perhaps we will talk about later on, but is there a way to find out what employees really want, right? Maybe you can ask them if instead of that happy hour, they would like a gym hour or whatever. They would, you know, like a team building event once a month. Um, You know, perhaps there is a way to actually find out what they want and then provide them with that exactly. 
Right, right, exactly. <laughs> like maybe, maybe people want, you know, and we we do this at at the current place I work. Um, if we're having like a lunch meeting, um, you know, because we try to avoid having meetings over lunch, although it still happens. But you know, if we're going to have one, um, occasionally we'll say, okay, everybody can. Um, use $25 on Uber Eats to order a lunch and then we'll all eat lunch together virtually, you know? Um, so there are other ways to, to do that that um, aren't as problematic. All right. Well, it, as long as it's going in a better direction. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about finance. Companies always, um, you know, care about their profitability. Uh, so what would you say is the cost of implementing uh, one employee wellness program? Well, it can really, really vary. I mean, first of all, the main thing is the design of the program. Um, it can in, involve a significant investment depending on how comprehensive the program is. Um, also, you know, as I've mentioned, some programs offer incentives. And so if you're giving a prize or a financial reward, that can that's part of the cost as well. Um, sometimes there are technologies that are added into the program. So like if you're giving people a fitness tracking app or a pedometer or something like that, or a heart rate variability monitor, that that all um, increases cost. Or if you're offering free health coaching sessions, so you have to factor all of that in, or the health screenings and assessments. So um, it can be super variable. And so when you look at um, a number of studies and surveys, it can cost an organization anywhere from $36 to $1,200 a person. That's what they find. So it's a very big range. Um, the average cost of a wellness program in the most recent study that I could see was around $742 per person. Um, but that number really can vary widely. And, you know, the hope is that it would also reduce um, costs and save money for the employers over time if folks are health healthier and happier. Right. So how can companies measure their return on investment when it comes to wellness programs? Well, so you have to have the measurement in mind before you start. So you have to have a plan for that. Um, so you want to do, you know, some sort of baseline assessment. So then you have something to compare against in a follow-up assessment. Um, that may be around health and well-being or productivity. Um, tracking participation rates so you can get a sense of whether or not this is something, uh, as you've mentioned a couple times, that employees actually want. Um, potentially measuring how health outcomes, if there's a way to do that, that doesn't invade people's privacy. Um, and then actually analyzing some financial data in, in some cases, so they can determine if there's been a positive return on investment, like comparing the cost of the program to any savings in healthcare costs or related expenses, um, conducting employee surveys to get feedback on the program and determine if the employees feel like it's valuable and effective. And so if you can use all of those methods together, then, then companies can really make an informed decision about the effectiveness of the program and the return on investment. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the average return on investment when it comes to wellness programs at this yeah, point? Yeah, like I said, it can, yeah, it can vary based on a number of factors like the size and the type of company, the type of wellness program. 
um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, different studies have found that the return on investment for a wellness program can range from anywhere between $1.50 to $3.80 for every dollar invested. And some programs show even higher returns. Um, it's, it's hard to measure the return on investment accurately because there are so many uh, factors that um, affect whatever outcomes you're looking at. Um, but, but it is definitely something that, um, you know, many studies have shown that there, there is at least an incremental return on investment for, for these sorts of things. All right. So uh, we are running out of time, actually. We have some 17 minutes left. So let's move on a bit to some of the new trends and changes happening. Uh, we hear a lot today about the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion. How can workplace wellness programs be thoughtful about that uh, before they implement them? Yeah, it's definitely something that um, takes focused attention, but absolutely we we can be sensitive to DEI needs. Um, so first of all, you want to incorporate diverse perspectives. So when an organization is beginning the work of designing and implementing a wellness program, you want to incorporate diverse perspectives in those discussions so that while it's being conceptualized and planned, um, you know, you're understanding um, perspectives from a lot of different uh, backgrounds and experiences, or even consulting with DEI experts to make sure that the program is inclusive and equitable from the beginning. Um, then you may want to address social determinants of health, um, like access to healthy food, safe neighborhoods for exercise um, that can affect the health of employees from different backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses, making sure that that has been considered. Um, then when you're working on rolling out the program, make sure to use inclusive language and imagery. Um, you want to use imagery and language that reflects the diversity of the workforce that the program program is, is being rolled out to. Um, you know, so using images of people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, using gender neutral and inclusive language, making sure to avoid stereotypes. And you can actually even consider cultural preferences and traditions. Um, so you can incorporate the preferences and traditions of your own employees when designing programs, like when you're offering healthy food options, have it reflect different cultural cuisines, or making sure that when you're providing resources for stress management, that they're culturally sensitive. And then finally, and, and this is a, a big one, actually addressing biases and discrimination in the workplace. So, one of the major sources of stress for many employees is when there are real biases or real, um, you know, things that cause discrimination in the workplace. And so you want to, yes, provide resources and for mental health and support. Um, but the more important thing is to address the root cause and work on reducing the discrimination and harassment that may be causing that stress. I completely agree. So something that is also new uh, is that organizations have created a new title, a new role, Chief Wellness Officer. Um, and what would the general responsibilities or qualifications be for that role? 
Yeah, so a chief wellness officer, um, and you saw a lot of these pop up over the past three years since since the beginning of the pandemic. So that person is usually responsible for developing, implementing, and overseeing all of the company's employee wellness programs. Um, they work closely with both management and employees to create that culture of wellness that supports well-being and engagement. So all of the things I've talked about today, so developing and implementing that comprehensive wellness program, partnering with leadership to make sure it aligns with the company's mission and values, establishing metrics, um, developing and managing the budget, uh, leading if there's a larger team because it's a larger company, leading the wellness team, um, maybe delivering some of the educational content, um, making sure that they're measuring that return on investment and, and staying current on wellness industry trends so that the programs can continue to evolve. Do you think that most companies in the future will have something similar, even if it's you know not called chief wellness officer? Do you think that large corporations, large organizations will have someone responsible for that? I I think that Yes, there there has been a, um, a, a truly a, a shift, and there is attention to this, and that probably won't go away. That said, um, I have also uh, read that a lot of those chief wellness officer positions, just like the chief diversity officer positions that have been created over the past few years, a lot of those are going away as the um, economy is contracting. So I think it's one of those things where, yes, there will continue to be attention to those things, whether or not there is a dedicated leader focused on that probably will be influenced by larger economic trends. And in times where the economy is good and, you know, um, revenue to a company is good, they're more likely to invest in things. Uh, but they're probably also, to some extent, the first things to go when there's a contraction. Well, the big massive layoffs that happened, it feel like it feels like it affected everyone, right? Whether it's due to the recession or due to technology, due to AI. Uh, it depends on the source. Some sources are saying that AI will replace 300,000 jobs, a million jobs. So where can you see the future of this in our rapidly changing, you know, technology focused world? Yeah, it's really interesting to think about, and and I think that um, we, probably you know if we tried to predict out even five years ahead from now, we we would be wrong because I, things are changing so quickly. But I mean, things that you could imagine based on what we're looking at now, you could imagine that some of those wellness challenges, um, if it's a tech-focused company, um, maybe would include things like augmented reality in the um, in the wellness challenge, make it a more immersive um, experience to inc encourage physical activity or healthy habits. Um, doing mindfulness and meditation using wearable technology. So providing people with heart rate variability monitors and helping them not just meditate by listening to a recording, but actually doing their own biofeedback. I, I can see that happening. Um, or really looking at things in a, in a different way. I could also imagine, um, you know, we know that um, the 
the younger uh, part of the workforce is even more um, focused on how to improve the world and and communities. And so um, I could really see shifts going forward where um, there would be collaborative wellness programs that weren't just focused on individual wellness, but that actually focused even more on community impact. Um, I, I could see those sorts of uh, changes coming too. Well, it's all about, does it bring us close together or does it bring us apart? Technology, you never know. It depends on who you talk to, right? <laughs> but mm -hmm. let's hope for the best. Let's right. hope that everything will be better. <laughs> um, so let's uh, just quickly go over what can companies do? How can companies learn what to do when it comes to employee engagement and wellness? Yeah, I think, okay, so the first thing you want to establish your baseline, you want to assess what is your current state of employee health and wellness in your organization. So conduct a survey, collect data on employee health risks, health behaviors, the workplace environment, um, what their individual concerns are to identify the areas for improvement. So don't just take a, a package um, that comes off the shelf from another organization, but first understand really what your organization needs. Then use that data to develop a comprehensive wellness program um, that is specific to the company and its employees and making sure that there are measurable goals, objectives, and action steps. Then you design the wellness program, um, and it could include all of those things around physical, mental, emotional, financial, career health, all, all of those things. And then working on engaging the employees. So encouraging the employee participation, making sure that leadership and management are engaged and they're modeling the engagement themselves. Um, and you may use incentives, um, new ways of communicating and supportive workplace policies so people can engage in the programs. Um, so then you implement, you evaluate, you regularly evaluate, you look for areas of improvement through data collection and getting feedback, and, and then continuously improve the program using that data. Um, and, and a lot of companies also seek the expertise of wellness consultants or healthcare professionals or employee benefits providers to help guide them through that. And, and there are also lots of online resources these days where, you know, smaller companies can learn about what to do as well. Furthermore, we are talking about leadership now, people who make the big decisions, but let's move down a bit. Can someone, you know, who directly manages you as an individual, individual contributor, can they help to contribute to their team's wellness and well-being? Absolutely. I I think that um, that middle managers are really the, the heart of an organization. They're the ones who are supervising the work and have the most influence on an employee's day-to-day -day life. I saw a headline the other day from a study that said, your direct supervisor has more impact on your well-being than your therapist does. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that's probably true. I mean, you're interacting with your supervisor all day long, or at least following their lead. So, um, so I think really the role of the manager 
manager or the supervisor in promoting employee wellness is critical. Um, first of all, as I've mentioned uh, today several times, first of all, leading by example, modeling those healthy behaviors like taking breaks, getting enough sleep, exercising, eating well. By doing that, they can model for their team members that it is important and acceptable to prioritize their health and well-being. Um, creating that supportive environment that values employee wellness um, and encouraging their employees to take time off and to prioritize their mental health. Um, encouraging that open communication so that if employees are going through a rough time, they feel comfortable telling their manager or supervisor. Um, offering flexibility when, when possible. I mean, not every uh, work assignment allows for flexibility, but when it does, um, being open to that. And then providing training and education on health and wellness topics um, so you can help your employees continue to learn new ways to develop healthy habits and behaviors. I, I think managers and supervisors have one of the most important roles. Even if there's not a formal wellness program, managers and supervisors can do all of those things for their team. That is very true. When we encountered those managers that are always overworking themselves uh, and, you know, working 16, 20 hours a day, like it, it's usual that their team is burned out and overwhelmed and not sure what to do or how to act and how to even set a boundary when your supervisor is working more than you, right? Mm -hmm. How do you tell them, this is my time off. Now I'm at home. Now I'm not able to answer your emails. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have one great question that I will just uh, ask you now before we wrap up. Uh, do you think that there are any differences when it comes to the U.S. and Europe for this oh, specific sure topic? Yeah, I am sure there are differences. I mean, I, I, um, my mom is from Germany, so that's probably the country I'm, I'm most familiar with as an example. Um, but I know that, for example, in Germany, and I think in much of Europe, um, you know, uh, you guys get a lot more time off than, than we do in the States, you know, and here in the U.S., it's very common to only get two weeks off during the year. Um, whereas in Europe, it's, you know, four or six more weeks. Um, so I think that that definitely is a difference. And I, I get the sense that, uh, but I could be wrong, I get the sense that it is somewhat more acceptable to um, to set those boundaries at the end of the workday. I've, I've read some things, I think, in France and some other countries where there's actually legislation that your boss cannot send you an email after hours. So, um, so I think there are probably some things that are um, Better. On the other hand, maybe in the U.S. we're more comfortable these days talking about mental health concerns. And I know that in other countries that is, you know, still has more stigma around it. So, um, yes, I think ab absolutely there are probably all sorts of differences from country to country and even different communities within those countries, which is exactly why you want to always do that um, organizational assessment before you put anything in place, because what's appropriate and useful in one place may not be quite right somewhere else. 
I have to agree, having worked with both uh, American and European professionals and companies, uh, when it comes to someone in the U.S., they're taking just one day off, feel free to call me, feel free to reach me. I'm, I'm, I'm at uh, knee surgery right now, but you can reach me, you know, in an hour. And then when it comes to someone in Europe, like I will be off for the next two weeks uh, if you need anything else here's my colleague, <laughs> right? right? I'm not available. I don't have access to email. I will not be able to uh, respond to you in any way. Right. I literally had one of my friends several years ago <laughs> who was responding to things on her BlackBerry after open heart surgery from her hospital bed. And she was completely out of it. And I was like, Jan, get off your BlackBerry. You're not making any sense. <laughs> Stop it. Take care of yourself. <laughs> uh, so what are some thoughts that you want to leave our audience with when it comes to employee wellness programs? Okay, well, may maybe just a few things to sort of wrap up. Um, so burnout. Burnout is a workplace problem, not a primarily individual problem. Um, you know, a lot of times we see it as a personal problem because it's the person who's feeling burned out and so they can solve it through self-care, but it's really a workplace problem in my opinion and it requires systemic changes in the ways organizations operate. Um, well-being also, in addition to all the things I've talked about today, I think it also fundamentally requires a sense of purpose and meaning. And so it's not just about physical health, but about finding a sense of purpose and meaning in your work. And so whenever possible, when employees feel like their work has meaning and it contributes to a larger goal, they're more likely to experience well-being and engagement. Um, Connections and relationships, they're absolutely critical to well-being, even for introverts, um, you know, may need it expressed in a different way. But those connections and having those trusting, respectful relationships with the people you work with are essential. Um, and that can help people feel happier, more comfortable, more fulfilled, regardless of what they're doing. And then flexibility and autonomy are both really important for well-being. Because um, in the workplace, having flexibility and autonomy allows people to tailor their work to their individual needs and preferences when possible. It's not always possible, but when possible. Because when employees have control over their work, the research shows that they're more likely to have well-being and engagement. So overall, just what I would hope that people have heard today is there should really be a holistic approach to employee well-being that takes into account social, emotional, psychological factors that all contribute to a happy and healthy workforce. Well, I'm here hoping that most companies will <laughs> will implement some some of that at least. Um, and we have a lot of people who. Uh, were listening to us today. So if they wanted to reach out to you to discuss anything or learn more, how would they, how would they be able to reach you? 
Yeah. So there, you know, people are welcome to reach out to me on, on LinkedIn, make a connection. You can write me a message there, or you could go to the website for my independent consulting business where I help uh, individuals and teams and companies work on these sorts of issues at flexibleedgesolutions.com, or you can send me an email at flexibleedgesolutions, all one word, at gmail.com. And I'll look forward to hearing from people.